Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to really deal with a kind of difficult passage this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, but I've entitled the message, Who Am I? I can remember vividly when I was about 18 years of age, I had was in submarine school in Groton, Connecticut, and I was on my way home flying out of the airport to come visit family during Christmas. And many of you know I'm a musician, and everywhere I go, I have a banjo or a guitar. And so I'm going through the airport in Connecticut and carrying my banjo and guitar, but, but that's not all there was to the story. I was at that age when I was trying to figure out who in the world is J-Mo. Do you relate to that? At times, some of you may be my age and still trying to figure out who in the world you are. But especially at that time, I was just trying to figure out who I was. And I was walking to the airport, and I'm almost embarrassed to share, but I had one of these suede jackets, big, thick suede, like Jeremiah Johnson would have worn, you know, with all the fur around the collar. And I'm walking, and and I've got my boots on. I still wear boots, but these boots, man, you could have gotten a roach or a flea in a 45 or 90-degree angle, regardless of what room you may have been in. And I had this big belt buckle on, and I'm walking through the airport, and I'm noticing that everybody's looking at me. And I'm thinking, man, they think I'm something. They probably think I'm a star. Now I realize they thought I was an idiot. I was trying to figure out who in the world I was. And that relates a lot to what Paul is writing in this passage, and I've entitled the message, Who Am I? Because Paul is writing to this early church where many of them had come out of just a wretched background, participated in things that most of us in this room probably, or maybe some have, gone to this degree. And they were getting saved, their lives would be transformed, and they were coming into the body of Christ. And do you know some of them were still struggling with those things in the formal life? We do realize that the moment we're born again, all of the things that we struggled in before don't go away magically. And so they were coming into the church, and Paul's with this challenge, and so he's writing to them, and He's making a comparison so that they may identify who they are, and he uses the term of the person who is unrighteous. And then he uses the term with those who are righteous. And really he asks the question, who are you and which are you? And so I'd ask the question this morning, are you an unrighteous person or are you a righteous person? He begins here in verse 9 where we pick up by saying that the people who are unrighteousness, or don't you know that those who are unrighteous will never enter the kingdom of heaven? Those who are unrighteous. Then he goes on to list to describe the actions that some of them had been involved in before, some were still involved in. And he goes on to use this as a descriptive term of those who are unrighteous. And by the way, it's not a limited list. It's just what Paul wrote about. And he says, do, you, do not be deceived, brothers, neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
anyone who practices these things, he says they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. So again, asking the question, who are the unrighteous? I don't understand what is going on here. We first need to understand that, that God is a holy and righteous God. And really, it's impossible for you and I to comprehend the extent of God's holiness and His righteousness because we are not. And to try to understand that concept of God being holy and righteous, we can't. But because God is holy and because God is righteous, it's impossible for any of us in this room this morning to have a relationship with God in our unrighteousness. Does that make sense? And so Paul lays out this list of those who are unrighteous. And, and you may be sitting there and you may be a good little, uh, a good little, um, a good little Southern Baptist grew up and you know the big things not to do. You know, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, and I don't run around with women who do. Okay, so I'm okay on all of those fronts. But what does he mean by unrighteous? In some of the other translations, that word is translated wrongdoers. So any wrongdoer cannot inherit the kingdom of God. They can't be in relationship to God. We might say that a wrongdoer is a no-gooder in southern terms. But you may be here this morning and you may be a do-gooder. But let me tell you, even if you're a do-gooder to the greatest extent, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven because you're still a wrongdoer. Jesus said that there's a standard that God has for righteousness. And in order for fallen human beings to be in relationship to Him, that that standard has to be met. He tells a story in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, or he's talking, and he, and he tells them, I tell you this, guys, those that were listening to him. He said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, in their day, to those listeners, the scribes and the Pharisees were the most righteous people that they knew. Yet Jesus said that even in their righteousness, even in their do-gooderness, Jesus called them, equated them to empty whitewashed tombs that are filled with dead man's bones inside. In other words, the outside is clean, but inside it's just filthy, dirty. And you or I can do all we can to clean up the outside, to do all the things that look right to do all the things that we think are do-gooder kind of things and avoid the things that are not do-gooder things, but it is not enough to meet the standard of God's righteousness. There was a young man that came to Jesus one day, and he asked Jesus the question as, as they were going along. He said to Jesus, Teacher, what good thing must I do in order to inherit the kingdom of God or have eternal life? It's a good question, right? He recognized that God was righteous, and he saw that there had to be something then that he had to do in order to have a relationship to God and be accepted by God as righteous. And so he asked the question, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? And so Jesus said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only 
one who is good, speaking of God, if you would enter life, then keep the commandments. In other words, keep the list. You're going to enter into eternal life, keep the list. And the young man said to him, which ones? <laughs> I kind of I I laugh at that. Because he knew what the list was. He said, okay, with the list, and which ones do I have to keep? You know, it's kind of like that minimalist kind of thing. Okay, what little bit do I need to do just to have enough righteousness? And notice how Jesus responded to this young man. The way that he was responded had to deal in the area of how we are to be towards others from the Ten Commandments. You see, the Ten Commandments were broken in two sections. One was how we're to relate to God. Don't take the Lord God thy thy name in vain, etc., and the other had to do with how we relate to others. Jesus summed up all of the Ten Commandments, and he said, Dude, I, can, I can take all the Ten Commandments and all the law, and I can share them in two distinct laws, love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the area this young man needed to be dealt with was in the way that he related to others. And so Jesus comes back, and he says, these are the ones that you must keep. You must not murder you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. And then he says, honor your father and mother, and you'll love your neighbor as yourself. So the young man said to Jesus, man, I've done all of these. I've kept all of these. But there was something there in that young man that he recognized that, you know, still this isn't enough. So he asked the question, then what else do I need to do? And Jesus said, what you need to do is you need to take all of your possessions, you need to sell them, and you need to give all the money to the poor, and then come and follow me. Now, that's not a command for us to have to do. But Jesus understood that this young man, he could have the external of his relationships right. Everything looked good, but the issue was his heart. You see, and that's our issue as well. Our issue is not whether or not we can do the right things or stay away from the wrong things. The issue is, what is the condition of our heart? And so if our righteousness to is, is to exceed, exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, then there must be a right heart. And one might say, well, you know, I, I do all the right things. I do all the good things. And, and I think in some way, then God ought to merit me some means of righteousness. I'm reminded of what Isaiah said in his book when he said, all of our right deeds, all of man's good works, all of the things that we think are good to do in God's eyes, no matter how good they are in man's eyes, they're like filthy rags in the eyes of God. Can I give you a little bit more descriptive picture of what he meant when he said filthy rags? You see, the word that's translated there in Hebrew has to do with a special type of garment. And the special type of garment that Isaiah was referring to was a special type of garment that a female would use during her menstrual cycle. Sounds pretty graphic, but it's what God said. He said, all of your right acts are like filthy rags in the sight of a holy God. See, there's nothing that we could ever do. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 3. He says, none is righteous. How many is none? <laughs> All. <laughs> he says, none, not a, not a one of us is righteous in God's sight in our condition. He says, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God, for all have turned aside. 
For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the bottom line is that every one of us in this room in our natural condition, that is in our condition as fallen human beings, sinful at our very core, are not righteous. The only thing that makes us righteous is the blood of Jesus and accepting Him as a payment for our unrighteousness so that we might have the righteousness of God. Paul goes on to say in this verse, and he warns them, he says, don't be deceived. We know that we have an adversary, an enemy, who, who is the father of lies. He's the master at deceiving human beings, right? But I think there's another individual or another person that we wage war with on a daily basis, not on the enemy, not, not, not necessarily just the enemy, but it's ourselves, and it's so easy to deceive ourselves, isn't it? And Paul writes, and he says, listen, beloved, don't be deceived, for none of these will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And so we see here the answer to the question is, who is unrighteous, is that every one of us are unrighteous. We're undone. But then there's that other type of person that's mentioned here, and that is the one that, who is righteous. So now that everybody's feeling real bad, and we all know that we are unrighteous, worthless worms, can I say amen to that? He goes on in verse 12 or verse 11 by saying, And such were some of you. That word were means in the past tense. That before you came to know Christ, you were unrighteous. But when you recognize that God was a holy God and you recognize that you were unrighteous and some way there had to be a way to get to God in relationship and you've tried all the other things, you realize that none of those things are still something they're nagging that says, I know I don't have a relationship with God. What must I do? Someone shared with you the good news that Jesus has done it all for you and you placed your trust in him and now he has made you the righteousness of God in Christ. Amen. See, sometimes we have to feel bad before we feel good, right? And notice what he says here. There's four times he uses the word were. He says, such were some of you. Some of you lived this lifestyle. And you may be here this morning and you say, well, you know, I never lived that lifestyle. Listen, you may not have lived it, but it was in you. Maybe by the grace of God you were spared from certain levels and degrees of, of falling into these lifestyles. But it's in every one of us. It's in our hearts. We're born in that condition. So we're all guilty before God. But he says, you were once one of the, And then I love the next thing he says. But now... And it's implied at the end of the verse by Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. But now you are washed by His blood. In other words, you've got a good old cleaning. Reminds me of the hymn, What Can Wash Away My Sins? 
What can make me whole again? Oh, precious is the flow that makes me whiter than snow. I want to remind you this morning that if you've placed your trust in what Christ has done for you, He has washed you, cleansed you whiter than snow by His blood. Can you say thank you for that? He says, you were washed, and then he says the next thing, and, and you were sanctified. Now, that word sanctified is not a word that we use in our everyday conversation. I mean, I can hear you guys twitting. Is that it? There is a generational gap here, just in case you didn't know. I've been sanctified, but what that means is that when Jesus saved you, he set you apart unto himself. And he made you holy. Now, if you're like me, I know how unholy I am. And it is an encouragement. It is a, a promise. It is a truth that I have to remind myself of every single day. That God, by his grace, has sanctified me and made me holy. So that as he looks at me, he sees a holy son. When he looks at you, if you've trusted Christ, he sees a holy son or a holy daughter. That's the way he sees us. The next thing he says, not only has he washed us, he has sanctified us, but he says that we were justified. That's another word you don't twit every day. But it's a judicial term that where a judge, if he orders an edict or a judgment, he throws down the gavel, it is done. And when God has declared you justified, it's as if he looks at you just as if you'd never sinned and you were made righteous in his son Jesus. Isn't that great? The question is, have you accepted Christ? Have you accepted what he has done for you? You see... The flesh tells me I've got to work for that thing. I've got, I've got to do everything I can to be righteous. I, I've got to avoid those things that I know that are wrong, and I've got to do the things that I know that are right. But if you try to do that long enough, you'll recognize and realize that you're failing at it miserably. Paul talked about this when he wrote the book of Romans in Romans chapter 7. Even the apostle Paul struggled with this. And he said, man, why is it that the things I know that I ought not to do, I find myself not doing? Did any of you know some things you ought to be doing, but you find yourself not doing? Go ahead, be honest. Raise your hand with me. Are there any things that you find that you know that you ought not be doing, but you go on and do it anyway? Let me see the hands up. There we go. And Paul's struggling with this. He says, why is this happening? And he cries out, oh, wretched that a man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. So which are you? Are you unrighteous? I'm not asking do you do bad things. I know you do bad things. Or are you righteous in that you've been made the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ and by Him alone? If you're the righteous, then the question is, then how do I live out this life? 
How do, I, how do I live out this life of righteousness? And now Paul goes on to describe that in the last part of the chapter. Follow along with me as I read beginning in verse 12. He says to this body of believers, he says, Look, all things are lawful for me. In other words, I, the, the written code of the law, all the ceremonial stuff that was required, all things are lawful. I can now eat pork. So you can put bacon on your burger this afternoon. It's okay. If you're a vegan, you're just in trouble. All things are lawful for me. I, I, I can do all things. And the Bible talks a lot about this Christian liberty. We're going to see it later in a couple of the chapters more. He says, but not all things are helpful. I mean, it's lawful for me to eat fried chicken, Right? But it's certainly not helpful. Amen. It's all lawful for me to down six Diet Cokes a day, but it's not helpful, right? And so that's the point that Paul's talking about. And he says, All things are lawful for me, but I do not, I will not be dominated by anything. I will not be dominated by anything. Listen, exercise is good for me, right? Some of you don't say, nah, it's not. <laughs> but an overindulgence of it is not. You see the point that he's making here? So when we run around and say, you know, the Christian can't do this, or Christian can't do that, listen. All things are permissible, but not everything is profitable for me. And, and I don't want to be dominated by any of it because my life has been given to Him and my body now belongs to Him. He goes on to say this in context in particular of sexual immorality. And moms and dads, I need your permission to talk to your kids like a grandpa. I'm not old enough to be your granddad, but I'm going to talk to you like that today, okay? Izzy, where are you? I'm not old enough to be your granddaddy, but I want to talk to you like a daddy and a granddaddy. He says, listen, here's the illustration he gives. He says, verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? That's a heavy thing when you think about it. Your bodies are members of Christ, and shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute or one who is not my husband or my wife? You see, the definition of sexual, sexual immorality is anything outside of what God has prescribed. One woman, one man, in holy matrimony, in marriage, that's where it's intended to be. And so he says anything outside of that is sexual immorality. And not only is it wrong, but it is also destructive. Look what he says here. He says, shall I take the members of, my, of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? He says, never. Or do you know, not know that 
He who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her or him. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. And there's this great thing that God has given to us as a gift. And that when a man and woman come together in marriage, God makes them one. And the expression of that, in that unity that God has brought us together, is in that intimate, intended sexual expression for, number one, procreation, and yes, for satisfaction. I'm okay talking about this. Now, if the church can't talk about this, who is? And God has given that to us. However, however, We all have appetites that are natural to us. I have an appetite to eat, right? But if I eat in the wrong way or if I overindulge, what's going to happen? It's going to mess me up. And the body was not intended by God, what Paul was saying, to be used as an instrument to fulfill my sensual desires. In other words, I don't want the tail wagging the dog. The same in sexuality. The body was not given so that it can please the sensual desires sexually that we're all born with as created in the image of God. And what the enemy wants to do is to get us trapped, entrapped in using our body to fulfill those desires rather than them to complement and equip, enable, and build the body. Does that make sense? He goes on to say in this passage that any other sin that we engage in is external, if I can use that term. But when we engage in sexual immorality, that is sex outside of marriage, that we sin against our own bodies. And sin is pleasurable for a season, right? When Paul says, I really looked at this, I said, what does he mean by we sin against our own bodies? And then it dawned on me. That there is such an intended intimacy that God has created between husband and wife that when that takes place in that context that God has ordained, it is a beautiful thing. But when we engage in that outside of what God has intended, It's destructive to her own body, not only physically, but mentally and emotionally as well. Some of us in this room who may have engaged in that lifestyle before we came to know Christ would be able to testify that there's some still some emotional and mental baggage that we carry around because of the way we live before we came to know Christ. Can I get an amen on that, please? Or am I the only one? And then he goes on to tell us, don't you know that your body belongs to him? And as a matter of fact, it not only belongs to him, but it's where the Holy Spirit of God resides. 
so that when you and I became born again, I don't understand this, it's beyond my comprehension. The Bible is very clear that when we trust Christ for our salvation, we are given the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit of God indwells us. That's not something you think about every day, is it? It's a mind-blowing thing. That God has placed in every one of us the Holy Spirit of God. But it's a good mindful thing for me to keep in mind that in every area of my life that I engage, that it's not just me engaging in that area of life, but when I go into that area, I am taking God himself in that area. Oh! Right? But along with being given the Holy Spirit who resides in us, We have been given liberty by the Holy Spirit. And liberty is not a license to do as I want to do to satisfy my appetites. But liberty means that I no longer have to be bound in chains to those things that once held me captive. The Holy Spirit of God resides in us. Paul later in this book in chapter 10 was... And he says, whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So the question for me, for you, on a daily basis as we are disciples of Christ, is not can I do this or can I not do this? The question is, uh, is this going to bring glory to God? Is this going to bring glory to God? To God. That's really what worship is. We put worship in the context of what we do here on Sunday mornings or in a small group where we sing songs. That's only an expression of worship. You see, God has so enabled us and made it that we can worship Him every single day through everything that we do. Why? Because he is worth our worship, our very life.